Welcome to the Building of Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. J.J., week two of 2019. How are you doing on your resolutions? Fantastic, actually. <laughs> I really am. So here's the thing. Yes. The last couple times you've asked me on our podcast about yeah. goals and things like that, it was kind you of like- You poo-pooed them. Well, poo-poo is a strong term, but I have not bought into them fully in you the are past. personally not drawn to them. I do make goals, but it's not like I set these things down and keep a journal about it. However- Mm. This year, I already started, I have a journal that I have them written down in, that I have my word for the year, that I have my goals for the year, and I am moving JJ forward. JJ has I know. personal guiding I principles. Know. Look I out, do. world. Here's what's amazing, though. You're, you're not a goal guy, but you're incredibly accomplished. I, mean, I don't know how, yeah. right? Getting a PhD is like running an Ironman. Yeah. yeah. It really is. <laughs> yes, it, it has been. It, it, yeah. yeah. And, so, and so that's been always interesting about you because I'm a gold junkie. I mean, I yeah. review my goals every morning, all that kind of yeah. stuff. And you were doing well in week two. Yeah. Can you give us a little preview of what they are? Well, one thing is, so I passed my dissertation defense. Congratulations. The, the, the proposal defense. And so my actual dissertation defense is going to be in April. So I sat down and I actually wrote out a calendar of what has to be accomplished up until then, and I already accomplished the first goal on that list. I crossed it off. <laughs> you are, are um, you an Enneagram two with a three wing or a yes, one wing? Two with a three. Yeah, and tap so, into that three. Yep. And then another one was you know, we've talked about like lead and lag measures of how you achieve goals, right? Like if I follow these habits, then this will be the result. So instead of saying I want to lose a bunch of weight, what I've said is I actually want to meal plan for three days a week. And so I was able to go and I bought soup and I bought some rice bowls that I made and I made those and I have those set up for this week. So like, yeah, so like those are just two. And then I have a couple kind of emotional and spiritual ones as well. I'm going to on-site. We've talked about this. Yes. So yeah. So that was another one. I actually had contacted them. I have the application. What a great so, way to start the year. So three things. One of, like I said, there's some others, but I actually have those written down and starting on my calendar for my defense, my weight management that comes through meal planning, and then also going to on-site. So. I love it. I really believe this. I don't think it's about hitting the goals. Yeah. I think it's about making them and being on a journey toward them yeah. and loving life. Yeah. Real quickly, Onsite Workshops is a therapeutic retreat center. That is not yeah. a sponsor of this no, show, no. <laughs> but something I believe in. Because when yeah. we speak inside language, sometimes like people yeah. should know more well, about that. Well, we've had Miles on the podcast. We've had Miles so, on the yeah, podcast. Yeah. He runs the place. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. This is the first year on this topic that I remember setting goals. Let's see. I was going to weigh 190. Mm -hmm. I was going to go to the gym 50 times. Mm -hmm. Those are my physical goals. And then... I wanted the company to cross 10 million. We did 5.6 million in 2017. Really wanted to get it across 10 million. This year, closed the year at 204, which is the lowest weight I've weighed since junior high. But I weighed 226. So I lost 22 pounds uh -huh. of fat. Uh -huh. <laughs> did not hit my goal because uh -huh. the goal is 190. So yeah, 12 yeah. pounds off of that. We hit 9.86 something. Yeah. <laughs> 9.86. <laughs> yeah. So $140,000 off a $10 million year. And then, but. All I wanted to do was go to the gym 52 times because my goal was not to work out. It was to set a habit yep. of enjoying yep. working out. Mm -hmm. Went 120 times. Yeah. I'm completely addicted to swimming. Yeah. If you watch me swim, you'd say, Don, that's not swimming. That's what a manatee does. But <laughs> I call it swimming. Yes. And I freaking love it. Yeah. And it's a mixed bag. Yeah. 
I mean, it just is. But at the same time, you're sitting there going, wait, you're $4 million richer as a company than you were the previous year. Yeah, you're yeah. 20 pounds down. Goal setting is fun. Yeah. It enters us into logotherapy, what Victor Frankel talks about. Mm-hmm. Having a project that you wake up and are excited about is incredibly important for your mental health. Yeah. And, you know, I love it. JJ, here's a trick question. Yeah. If we don't goal set, mm-hmm. we are in danger of not having a direction in life. Yep. Feeling lost. Yeah. And really not living up to our potential as human beings. Yeah. Those yeah. are problems. Those are big problems. JJ, they, what did I just do in me, the mind of the listener? <laughs> you posited <laughs> three different levels of problem. Three different levels of problem, which yes. is the topic of today's podcast. Weird. You Now, I usually joke about being a master at transition, but that really was. You gave me an external problem, That's right. an internal problem, and a philosophical problem. The only problem is, everybody <laughs> thought this was going to be an exciting topic, to, a <laughs> podcast about goal setting. It isn't. It's not. It's about problems. It's about problems. This is week two of 2019. Uh We're going to go for seven weeks, and we're going to talk about, and each week we're talking about each element of the StoryBrand framework. Last week, we talked about the fact that you've got to define what your character wants. Yes. This week, we're talking about in marketing, Mm -hmm. you have to define what your customer or your character's problem is. Yes. Yeah. And the problem is the trigger. Yeah. Everybody going to your website, trying to do business with you, is trying to solve a problem. And they often don't know what that problem is. Yeah. And sometimes they can't define it, or sometimes they have a problem and they don't feel it. Yeah. So, you know, not being able to define it would be, you know, I just feel restless in life and I'm not sure why, but I feel, you know, just like something's not right. And somebody comes in and says, do you know a lot of people don't have a close community of friends? We've actually put together book clubs all over the country where you can meet new people. And then they go, oh, I didn't uh, realize that was my problem. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. And maybe it isn't their problem. But it's yeah. going to be healthy if <laughs> yeah. they get into a community book club. <laughs> yeah, That's called agitating a problem. Yeah, And a lot of people listening to this, you need to define the problem that your customer has. Mm-hmm. And if they don't realize they have that problem, you got to agitate it. So we know that 99.9% of businesses have a website that is a waste of money. Yeah, they're frustrated with it. They're spending a lot of money on it, right. and it's not performing the way they it's want. It's not getting converts, and they yep. think, oh, the problem is the web. The problem isn't the web. The problem is the messages on your website are yes. not landing. That is not a problem that people know they have. Yeah. And so we built a $10 million company, forgive me, 9.86. We built an almost, <laughs> which should be my middle name, $10 million company, agitating that problem. Yeah. We had to go out and explain to people, listen, your message is so confusing, nobody can understand. Yeah. And they never knew that that was their problem. Yeah. So it does work. You know, If I go to the doctor and the doctor says, Donnie, you got really high blood pressure. I mean, you're going to have a stroke if you don't. He has to agitate that problem in my life because I don't feel it. Yeah. You know, I feel great. By the way, I don't have high blood pressure. I feel great. <laughs> and he's got to agitate that problem. Yeah. So sometimes you have to agitate the problem. It's also incredibly effective just to name it. Yes. And so when you say, your, you know, Dave Ramsey say your problem is debt. Yeah. Debt is ruining your life. And people go, man, yes. I just, I knew that, but I haven't acknowledged it. Yep. The second you name it, you open a story loop. Mm-hmm. Just like when you define what your customer wants. Last week's podcast episode. Go back and listen to last week. When you define what the problem that your customer has, you open a story loop. Yeah. And JJ, we teach people, you can open that story loop by stating one part of their problem, and you open it further by stating another, and then you blow it wide open by identifying a third level of problem, 
And in almost all movies, almost all stories, there are three levels of problems, and it's the way to you literally take like the dentist thing that opens your mouth further and you just <laughs> crank that baby open yeah. when you identify all three levels of problems that your yeah. customer has. And the bigger that you crank that problem open, the more magnetism there is toward your products yes. and services. And you've got to identify it. And you need to use the same language as we teach because there's going to be 50 problems that you saw. You can't. Yep. The story can't be about 50 problems. It's about one problem. And you've got to identify those three levels of problems. JJ, you've taught hundreds yeah. of companies. What are the three levels? And why well, are they the three important? levels, very simply, are external, internal, and philosophical. So external is what is the problem that's getting in the way of what your customer wants? What is the physical, tangible thing that is getting in their way? The internal problem is how that external problem makes them feel. That's right. So it's an internal kind of just struggle. They're overwhelmed. They're confused. They're feeling guilty or shame. And you actually need to really, this is where companies make a huge mistake is they don't address the internal problem. They focus on the external. But for me, we've talked about this before, if my lawn is overgrown, and I'm not embarrassed by it, or I'm not overwhelmed by it, or I'm not like feeling guilty, I'm not paying somebody to fix it. Yeah. So the purchasing power comes in that the internal, internal is the trigger. That is the trigger. So the external lawn can be growing. Companies can address external problems. Well, the biggest thing- Most is, of them, that's all they do. Yeah, they just address the external. And that's, I would say, if you cannot identify what problem you're solving for your customer, you have to start there. And I want to read that. I do want to reiterate what you just said. People are not motivated to solve an external problem. Yes. They're motivated to solve the external problem only because of the way that problem is making them feel. feel. Mm -hmm. And if they don't feel frustrated because of that problem, you will never sell them anything. And so you've got to identify not only that their lawn is unmanageable, but that they are embarrassed yeah. about that lawn. Yeah. And if they are embarrassed, they're going to call you more because they are embarrassed than because their lawn is yes, unmanageable. exactly. You need to get some emotional language into your market. Yeah. You really do. You need to resolve an emotional problem. And you need to basically deliver on that promise with your product to right. be able to say, we can solve this for you. You want to speak to that and say, it's not just about cutting your lawn. We actually will help you be proud of your lawn. You're not going to feel so overwhelmed anymore. You're going to have more time with your family and be able to do the things you want to do. That's right. And when you can actually deliver on that promise, you want to say it. You want to say it on your website. You want to say it in emails. And so the first level external, you have to identify what is the problem you're solving. And then the next level is what is the internal feeling that comes from the external problem. Right. And you have to speak to both of those. And then really the final and- Icing on the, the cake, but it's important icing. It is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of people get really sometimes stuck in this because they're like, oh, this is so important. It is, but it's icing on the cake of what is the philosophical problem that your brand stands to solve? And this is kind of the epic stakes in the story and in the brand. What does your customer deserve? What is wrong with the world that your product or service solves? So we always say it's wrong for you to spend marketing money and not get an enormous return. Yep. It's wrong. And I, you know, I get passionate about it. I yeah. want to flip <laughs> tables over in restaurants yeah. when I see it because, you know, somebody charges you a bunch of money for a website or whatever. They help you basically create a confusing message, yep. and then you just put a bunch of money into confusing potential customers. Yep. It's not right. and They deserve better. They deserve better. So that's the thing that you need to figure out is what is the sort of this thing that you're against that the world is doing to your customers. Yeah. It could be that they're getting ripped off. It could be that they're not getting the kind of customer service that they deserve. That'd be a great, like if mm -hmm. you're a restaurant or a hotel, food deserves to be prepared right. Yeah. You know, animals died for this. <laughs> animals didn't die so you get an overdone burger. <laughs> 
they gave their life. That burger should taste good, right? Those are the kinds of things that. Those are, that so I'm joking, about, yeah. but those are the sort. Don't yeah. If we go yeah, to a restaurant, yeah, and you tell me animals died. You know, like, we're animals probably not eating there. Yes. It's a no, yeah. That's terrible that. advice, but a good but, example. And that's the thing is in a movie in any good story. Yeah. You know, Bridget Jones deserves she to be loved. Does, she does. And. There is no story without a problem, right? Nah. Like it's a boring story if they never encounter a problem. But we also want to know how that problem's making them feel so we can identify with that character, right? So right. they're trying to disarm a bomb, but when they're disarming a bomb, they're actually feeling like they're not prepared, that they're that's overwhelmed. The external problem is the bomb. bomb. The internal problem is I don't think I have what it takes to yeah. do this. I'm scared. And the philosophical problem is bad guys That's are going to blow exactly. good guys up. And I, as a watcher of the movie, have never disarmed a bomb, but I can identify with that feeling like I don't have what it takes or feeling like I'm underprepared. And I also want to fight against the villainy of evil. Right. And so I can identify with that story, even though the external problem is there, the bomb, I identify in the story with the internal and the philosophical. So when you as a brand can name, if you don't name the external problem, people will not know why they're coming to you. Right. The only that's, reason that's they're coming the to you. That's usually the product you sell. Yeah, the product self product. solves the external problem. But then you have to actually identify and then speak to the internal and philosophical. Yeah. All this is really high level kind of yeah. thinking. And we've got millions of people who've bought into this idea. Yeah, yeah. But actually applying it and getting the words for your brand can be... Difficult. You mm -hmm. need to spend some time and you think about it. Well, last year I spent some time with Mars Pet Care. It's a global mm -hmm. pet care company, multi-billion dollar, privately owned. Did you know Mars is yeah, privately owned? the largest. Huge. And it's the same people who make the candy bars. They mm -hmm. have Mars, you know, company. And then Pet Care is a division of that. So they own like Royal Canin. They own Banfield Pet Hospitals. They mm -hmm. own, you know, multi-billion dollar company. Amazingly here in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. But I spoke to their global reps recently here in Nashville, but also in London. And we spent some time going through what is the external problem you solve, the internal problem, and the philosophical. And what we came up with for Mars Pet Care is the external problem is pets don't have a voice. I mean, literally, like, you know, Lucy lays at our feet yeah. whenever we record this podcast. She can't turn around and say, you guys, the food doesn't taste good. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. She's yeah. just like, actually, I think all food tastes good, yeah. Lucy. But, you know, <laughs> they don't have a voice. And so that's a little philosophical, but it's also the external problem. The internal problem is it makes the pet owner sad that pets don't have an advocate. Now, we're talking about not just for product. We're talking about... Global. Yeah, they really want to work with cities to make cities more pet-friendly because there's mm -hmm. all these studies that show if you have a pet, you're happier. And so they want to you know, make cities pet-friendly. That's the campaign that we're talking about. Pets don't have a voice. It makes us sad that they don't have an advocate. And then philosophically, we believe pets deserve to be cared for because they are so good for people. Mm -hmm. And so you can see the external, internal, and philosophical. Yeah. And so in their global campaign to make cities and really the world more friendly for pets, that's the external, yeah. internal, and philosophical that they are going to use. You can see how these three things work together. Yep. What that's doing in the brain is it's saying, man, pets don't have a voice. And you know what? It makes people sad that yep. pets don't have an advocate. We just widen the gap. Yep. And then pets deserve to be cared for because they're so good for people. You widen it even further. And so the mayor of Bristol would sit down and say, man, you know what? We really do need to do something about this. We've got a whole city full of pet owners, and they're going to be a lot happier in Bristol, yeah. England, if we have dog parks and pet-friendly businesses, and let's do a whole campaign to make this town pet-friendly. Yeah. Where if you just went to them and said, can we make the town more pet-friendly? They would say, you realize we got potholes yeah. everywhere, and yeah. hey, you know, we'll have tea with that person sometime down the road. Just kick the can. Yeah, yeah. But you open those three levels of problems, and now you got city government saying, we got to do something about this. Yeah. And so that's the power of opening up uh, these three levels of problems. 
if you want to do this, you want to make sure you're doing it right, you need to get the StoryBrand online course or you need to come to a live workshop and sit for two days with facilitators. Yeah. You can come to Nashville and attend a workshop and we'll help you through it because it's all great to agree with it and understand it. It's really hard to get your words right. Yep. If you want somebody to hold your hand doing that, you need to come see us. Right now, though, I want to have on our podcast Science Mike. Yeah. And we both love Science yes. Mike. He's <laughs> arguably the smartest person in the world. I, you know, I had an interesting conversation with another author recently. It wasn't Mike. And this person is a negotiation expert. They're mm-hmm. a law school professor. And I'm trying to get him to write a book about negotiation. Mm-hmm. And he said, Don, the book that you want to write is so simple. I worry that the academic community will look down on me because it's so simple. Negotiation is actually very complicated. Yeah. And I said to my friend, I said, look, you know, this is not a mergers and acquisitions world. Like, there's yeah. 50 people who need to know about that. Yeah. There's 5 million who need to know how to get a better deal on a car. Yeah. I want to write yeah. for the 5 million. <laughs> yeah. Right? So yeah. And I also said to him, the people we choose as leaders are not the smartest people. They're the smartest people who can translate things for mm-hmm. the people who aren't you know, educated in that particular area of their life. Yeah. Science Mike is that guy. Yes. You can go to him on a bunch of different subjects and he will explain to you, Don, here's what the brain is actually doing. Yeah. I had a conversation with Mike about a year ago when he explained to me that people are addicted to outrage. Yes, I remember what, you talking about yeah, this. Yeah, that what Fox News sells and what MSNBC sells, arguably even more, is outrage. And you get addicted to it. There's a pleasure chemical that lights up your brain yeah. when you are outraged at what Trump is doing. Yep. Therefore, the news is incentivized to sell you outrage, which may not mean to tell the truth about what's actually happening. They got to look for the outrage. Yeah. And that to me was fascinating. So I thought, I'm going to call Mike and just ask the blanket question, why are we attracted to negativity? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why? Why are we attracted to failure and terrible consequences? And, yeah. you know, this storm may be horrible. Because there's horrible. a lot of science behind it. There is a lot of science there's behind it. There's a lot of it. And, you know, in the research world, and psychology world, it's called negativity bias. Yeah. And he's going to get into some of that in this. But it really is the idea that we pay attention to more negative things. There's actually electroactivity in our brain lights up more around negative activity than positive activity because we're mm-hmm. afraid of the negative. Yep. And so he's going to talk a little bit. We might talk about Well, he's going to talk about, about how that's connected to your survival. But here's what I want everybody listening to the podcast to hear. You have to define your customers' problems, yep. all three levels of them. You cannot define them 50 ways. You got to define them one way. Yep. You know, the external internal philosophical, come up with your language and talk about it, and you will draw people to your product. And Mike is about to explain the science yep, behind it. Because people will pay attention. That's right. JJ, after I finish talking to Mike, I yeah. want to close this episode with the one thing, yeah. the one action step you need to take to grow your business as it relates to negativity, problem, failure, all yeah. that kind of stuff. There's one thing that you need to do. And if you do this, you're going to make money. The first seven episodes of this podcast, we want a very crystal clear way for you to grow your business because it's 2019 yeah, and it's time. Yeah. It's the beginning of the year. Get excited. So I'm going to give you the one thing, but it's going to be after the interview with Mike. Here's my conversation with Science Mike. Mike McCarg, thanks for coming on. Oh, man, it's a pleasure, always. Oh, I'm glad you're here. I think you're the smartest guy that I've ever met. We bring you on whenever we have something to tackle that is very complicated because you're very good at explaining complicated things. And the thing that I wanted to talk to you about today is the human brain's attraction to negativity. So, like, when the news says, you know, is there going to be a winter freeze and blizzardy conditions, stay tuned after the commercial 
They're opening a story gap in our brain that makes us want to pay attention during the commercial and come back and get the answer to that. But that story gap is almost always negative. It's never like, you won't believe what this puppy did at six months old. It's always negative. And then when we're watching a movie, it's the same thing. It goes negative, and we pay attention until that negativity is resolved. If you look at politicians, unfortunately... It's a manipulative tactic, it's a sales tactic, it's a marketing tactic to go negative and create villains where there may or may not be villains in order to get people in. I want to know, Mike, why does this work? Why do we respond so much to negativity? Yeah, you know, Don, the last couple of years, I've reframed my understanding of people by looking at economics and sociology and psychology and even anthropologies as subdisciplines of primatology. Okay. You mean like the ancestral ape part of our brains? Correct. And the contemporary parts of our brains, by every possible conceivable way of looking at the human animal, we are primates and highly social primates. In fact, we're the most social of the primates, which means our survival instincts are uniquely related to social interaction when compared with other animals and especially other primates. Are those survival mechanisms that by building a tribe and associating with people and those kinds of things, it increases our chances of survival? Exactly. Fifteen humans are a force to be reckoned with with nothing more than sharpened sticks on this planet. <laughs> One human is a weenie that's going to get wiped out in a couple of days. There you go. So we associate numbers with survival and we also, like all animals, we understand that negative things instinctively are immediate threats to our survival, whereas positive things are delayed gratifications that could potentially help us survive. Oh, that's brilliant. So we're looking to fix a negative faster than we are looking to create a positive? And that kept us alive instead of going extinct. So those mechanisms in our brain are really, really powerful. Avoiding negative things activates the parts of our brain that make us feel gratified and satisfied, even if they don't make us feel happy. Does this get into loss aversion? How does this explain this phenomenon of we are much more motivated to not lose $10 than we are to gain $10? Because if you think about the economic algorithm of it, they're awash. But we are actually much more motivated not to lose $10 than we are to gain $15, which would be a $5 gain in the long run. We will still not try to lose the 10 bucks. How do you explain all that stuff? That's evolution trying to keep you alive. Protecting and hoarding the resources you have is a guaranteed strategy. So even if your rational brain can come up with some scenario where it seems like your $15 is guaranteed, your instinctual emotive brain says, you know, rational brain, you're really new in the neighborhood. We've been around <laughs> for hundreds of millions of years longer, well, and we trust our strategy of protecting what we have because that's truly guaranteed on an evolutionary timescale. You've got to remember, to your brain, society and agriculture and language, they've all appeared in the last two minutes of our species' lifetime on the earth, and they're not trusted by the deeper components of the brain that have more wiring into our senses and behavior. For every neural pathway that leads from the thinking brain up front to the feeling brain deeper inside, there's two that run in the opposite direction. Our emotional brain has more power over the thinking brain than the other way around. Can our executive brains rationalize with our primitive brains? In other words, can we say, well, this is an irrational desire to sort of save this $10 when I could go make 15 I need to 
override my primitive brain, my squirrel brain, I sometimes call it, with my executive brain and make a more logical decision. Are we capable of that? We are, but we have to understand that the rational brain is about as big around as a half dollar and as thick as a tortilla. Whereas the emotional brain is like a pretty good-sized burrito. So if you think about the executive brain as a zookeeper and the emotional brain as several elephants, you understand the dynamic at play. The rational brain has to carefully corral and control the much more powerful emotional brain to drive action in the human animal. But the rational brain is also a bit of a narcissist. It wants to believe that it's always in control. So what we found in experiment is that when people make emotional decisions, their rational brains take credit for it, which is why I often call the executive brain the narrator. And in fact, I call in my Twitter bio, I call myself 86 billion neurons telling themselves a story because the main thing our rational brain does is tell a story that we equate with our consciousness. Well, the business application, the marketing application that we're trying to make is you've got to identify the problem that you're helping people solve because it's going to be a trigger. I want to actually have a related conversation. You and I talked, I believe, here in my house when you were visiting Nashville. We talked about people's tendency to become addicted to outrage. And I have seen that. You really framed that for me. And now I've seen it every time I turn on MSNBC or every time I turn on Fox News. I probably listen to a lot of news every day. And CNN does it to some degree. I can tell when they are basically trying to trigger my sense of outrage, which you say gives us also a sense of pleasure. Why are we so addicted to outrage? How are we addicted to it? Because we're a social species. And so moral outrage is an incredible coping mechanism for groups to regulate behavior. We're supposed to feel this righteousness when a member of our tribe violates a moral norm. And if enough other members of the tribe feel it simultaneously, it creates a counter incentive to breaking moral norms in a tribe. The problem is in modern media, especially social media, there's not as much risk in expressing moral outrage. When you're in a face-to-face -face setting and people start to express moral outrage, you can see the body language response of the one you're having moral outrage against. And there's also the risk, if you're the only one who feels outraged, you can actually turn the tribe against you instead of the one who created the transgression. Moral outrage in an evolutionary context is meant to be something that is an extremely powerful tool that is used with extreme caution. But when we mm. go into a media culture, especially social media, you maximize the punitive aspects to someone else of expressing moral outrage, but minimize the potential consequences to yourself. And that fundamentally changes the incentive structure for your brain as it makes these decisions. And that's why we've seen moral outrage spiral almost out of control. Not in all bad ways, by the way. I'm not saying moral outrage is uniquely terrible. No, there's some reasons for moral outrage. But what you're saying is the survival incentive, which is really a trigger of a lot of passion, the survival incentive of moral outrage is it is the issue or the thing that unites the people with the pitchforks and torches. And really, that's what we want, are the people around us with pitchforks and torches and fighting this perceived villain. We're really looking for that community and that sense of belonging and closeness and combined mission and unity of mission. And moral outrage is a fast magnetic tool to pull that together. Am I understanding that correctly? You are. And it even goes farther beyond the community building aspects. What we're finding is when people express moral outrage 
it creates relief from anxiety. And since people today are chronically anxious, anytime you have a behavior that alleviates anxiety, it has the potential to form into a compulsion. And so what we're seeing is millions of people in modern society express moral outrage compulsively to self-medicate their anxiety while creating social cohesion. And that, that is very powerful and beneficial personally, psychologically, but we're seeing that the societal consequences of that don't look as positive. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Science Mike in just a moment, but right now I want to remind you that there are three ways that we can hold your hand and carefully take you through the StoryBrand framework to clarify your message. Remember, words are free. They're absolutely free, and the only reason people buy anything is because they hear or read words that make them want to buy things. In fact, everything around you, look around. Everything around you is built by words. You say, well, no, Don, it's wood, it's stone, it's this. No, but somebody actually said, we should do it this way, or we should build a house here, or, we should buy this land. Those are words. Words create worlds, but only if they're the right words. If you need help finding the words that will build what you're trying to build, there are three ways you can go about it through StoryBrand. One, buy our online course. That's at storybrand.com online. Another way is to attend a live workshop where we have coaches and facilitators to help you through it. You can register for that at storybrand.com. And then finally, you can bring one of our facilitators in to your business. You have 20 people in your business in a room. We will take you through a day and a half process. It's unbelievably economical. People are actually surprised at how cheap it is to do this. We can come to you. Go to storybrand.com private. Storybrand.com private. Three ways to go through the same framework. Online, live in Nashville with coaches and facilitators, and for that matter, me in the room, and a private workshop. Go to storybrand.com to find out more. That's storybrand.com. We'll see you soon. I understand that when you state somebody's fear in a kind, safe way, for instance, if I'm at an airport and I say to somebody, it seems like you are afraid to fly or it seems like you have a fear of flying, that statement causes anxiety to be reduced in the recipient's mind. So expressing a moral outrage sounds like it does something similar. Why is it that the, just the statement of something and the acknowledgement of something that terrifies us, why does it reduce anxiety? Well, the biggest thing you've got to understand about the human brain is it's not one thing. There are hundreds of structures that all emerged over millions of years developmentally, and the different parts of your brain want different things out of life. And so often the reason our emotions are, are paralyzing or troubling to us is different parts of our brains are in different states and competing for attention and action. When you name something, you take the executive brain and the linguistic brain and the emotional brain and you point them all in the same direction, and that level of kind of neural resonance creates relief for the organism. Often when I'm feeling anxious, I've learned because of neuroscience to stop and simply name my feeling, even if I don't know why. Yeah. Just giving the feeling a name over the next 90 seconds creates tremendous relief, and once you have that relief, now I can start to look for causes and potential solutions. But the naming in the research is extremely powerful. I've done something recently through a Mike Hyatt product. It's a journal that you keep every day, and it just says, how am I feeling? 
I'm an Enneagram three, so I tend to just railroad over my feelings with action. And I've found that that's been an incredibly balancing process, just every morning sitting down and, because I have to think for a second, but I found that same thing to be true. Okay, final question. In a story, a villain is incredibly important. There are many important aspects to the story, getting the hero right, getting the guide right, all that stuff. But I mean, if you don't get the villain right, you can really ruin the story. And I think also in marketing frameworks, if your company doesn't have a thing that it's going to fight, not always a person, in fact, often it's not a person. It can be rust if you're selling a kind of paint that prevents rust, whatever. There has to be this villain that we are going to take down this villain. Why is a villain, in this same category of thinking, why is a villain so important in story structure? Why do we like, in a way, we like the villain, even though we want them to go down, but why is it so important in our structure? How is that connected to these survival mechanisms? Well, you know, I thought one of the most brilliant films in the last five years was the Avengers Infinity War film. Okay. Because when I saw it, I said, they've made the villain the protagonist. That's interesting. The whole film, Thanos, if you look at story structure, he's the protagonist. And I Googled it, and they've got an interview with the directors, and sure enough, they said, we decided to write a film, a blockbuster summer film, where the villain was the protagonist, where the heroes were opposing what the villain wanted. And because of that, it moved the story forward in such a compelling way, and I thought, why, right now, is a villain protagonist so compelling? The way our culture is setting up villains, whatever tribe you identify with, the leader of the other tribe is the Thanos. So if you're on the political left in America, Donald Trump is Thanos. But if you're on the right, Nancy Pelosi or Hillary Clinton are Thanos. Mm -hmm. Your entire story is navigating around the actions of the villain. And the reason that's so compelling from an evolutionary standpoint is because powerful villains represent high survival stakes. Right? right? If you don't have a compelling villain, then there's not really much of a story to care about. It's fine if times are good, you might be interested. But in a time right now where we understand anxiety is at historic levels, people have more angst about the direction of global society than at any point since World War II, epic antagonists are what it takes to grab attention because otherwise your story or your marketing don't seem as juicy as everyday living. And so what we can't ignore the background noise of culture when we create marketing messages, and this is a high-stakes time in human history. And so often only high-stakes messages are going to capture people's attention, which is why Infinity War did so well. <laughs> Tell me if I'm right. Correct me here. I think every human being is looking for a map. They're looking for a sort of moral map, ethical map, philosophical map to understand their existence. In that map, when you create a villain, you unite people around action that they can take to survive. That's right. And it's not just action that they can take as an individual. It's action that they can combine with a tribe to take so that they can survive. So even the vilification of Donald Trump, which arguably, I think there's some truth to that. I don't think this is a man with great moral character. But I'll also watch a press conference, and I'll agree and disagree with some things. And then I'm amazed at... When I watch later on MSNBC, they'll say, you know, Donald Trump says he knows about actions they've taken and he can threaten them and bring them down. Well, I watched the actual press conference and what he said was, listen, these Democrats are doing bad stuff, too. Believe me, I know a thing or two. And then he moves on. That's not Donald Trump saying, I've got something on Nancy Pelosi that's personal. And if she doesn't do what I want, I'm going to make it public. 
which is what the actual news story made it sound like he did. What MSNBC is doing there is they're actually romanticizing the negative behavior of Donald Trump to do two things. One, to cause the outrage that I'm addicted to, and two, to vilify Donald Trump. And then the reason that I'm actually attracted to that or want to believe that, it creates a map of my existence and it unifies me with a tribe and gives us direction to take, action to take, toward a villain that will equal my survival. The whole thing is arguably 50% fiction, but we're attracted to it anyway. Am I accurate on that? Absolutely, and I'd say it's higher than 50%. Well, I was being generous. <laughs> the biggest problem people have is they view themselves as rational actors that evaluate information and build an objective view of the world, and there's just no evidence to support that conclusion. We are a storytelling animal who creates a highly simplified model of reality in order to make survival decisions, and today our media exploits that. The structure we have where, you know, digital systems using learning algorithms are trying to figure out what maximizes our attention means we're accidentally and increasingly exploiting the most powerful and basic impulses that are in our organism via evolution. It's a game where ultimately I think everyone loses and that's why people today are so anxious and so unhappy because we keep raising the stakes in order to monetize attention. Mike, this has been a fantastic conversation. I love the way you think, and I think the only thing that you do better than thinking is communicating. You communicate very <laughs> complicated ideas so that we can understand them, ultimately helping us understand why we do what we do. You're a gifted man, and I'm grateful to call you friend. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Don, anytime. He's kind of a smart guy. <laughs> so smart. <laughs> He's also so humble smart. and There's wonderful. a reason. He did not give himself that name. Other people gave him yeah, the name did. Science Mike. And then yeah, he just I've kind been, of took yeah, We were just in L.A. and we got. I had the privilege of spending a good hour with him. And he's just fascinating. Mm -hmm. And that guy is a recipe for an annoying person. And somehow he's not. And everybody wants to be with him. Mike, we love you. You are very good for the world. Keep explaining things for us. Okay, JJ, I promised one thing. Yep. One thing that you need to do in order to make more money, and this is it. You need to, quote, finish this sentence. Okay. We save people from blank. Yes. You need to finish that sentence. Yep. If you finish that sentence and somebody asks at a cocktail party, and what do you do? Don't say, I'm an optometrist or yeah. I'm an orthodontist. We save people from a smile they don't like. Yeah. You know, we save people from roaches behind their fridge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we save people from leaking rules. I mean, Mike, just explain it. Yep. They're drawn to be taken away from something that is a threat more than they're drawn to be gained. Yeah. Heroes are people who save others. Yeah. And, you know, that's the heroic thing. And so we save people from. Now, get that messaging on your website. Get it on brochures. Get it in your keynote speeches. Get it in your elevator pitch at cocktail parties. Get it everywhere you can. Finish that sentence. We yep. save people from blank, and you are going to make a lot more money. All right, keep paying attention to the StoryBrand podcast. Next week, we get into the third element mm -hmm. of the StoryBrand framework, and that is play the guide, not the hero. Yes. It's the big paradigm shift everybody loves. Play the guide, not the hero. JJ and I are going to explain to you why if you play the hero in your life or as a brand, you're going to lose money, lose friends, and lose respect. Never play the hero 
Always Play the Guide. Our guest is Dean Nelson, head of the journalism department at Point Loma University. It's a fascinating conversation. Yeah. He actually tells us, he's an interviewer. He uh -huh. interviews people all the time, and he tells us how to empathize with the person you're talking to and draw information out of them, which is key yep. if you want to play the guide. Yep. You do not want to miss next week's episode. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, make sure to subscribe today. If you want to know more about everything I'm talking about, get my book, Building a Story Brand. It explains the entire seven-part framework. If you haven't gotten the book yet, you definitely want to. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's EP Dive Deep Hushed on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. <laughs>